1: So welcome to New Books in Critical Theory, uh, which is a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Dr Emily Dawson, who is an Associate Professor in the Department of Science and Technology Studies at University College London. And we're going to talk about her new book, Equity, Exclusion and Everyday Science Learning, the Experiences of Minoritized Groups. So welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you very much.
1: This is a great book. um, And it's incredibly sort of timely and relevant book as well, uh, because it deals with a question about Who is allowed into, I guess, who is in control of the Contemporary Museum, which is a really live subject, um, both in kind of museology, but also across uh, cultural institutions in Europe, America, Australia, lots of different places. And I guess the place to start is, um, where did this kind of come from? Is this something you've been working on for a very long time? You know, is it the kind of core of your kind of academic interest? How did the book develop?
0: Well, so I mean, in some senses, it feels timely, you know, and I get that. And, and people, I do talk to people about these kinds of interests. And I think there's certainly more of a, more attention being paid to issues of equity, inclusion, racism, sexism, and how that plays out in the cultural and political landscapes. And so to the extent that sometimes I worry they're a fashion, and that is fashions fashions do that, it will ebb and flow. And, and I would like to not see a flow. <laughs> I would like them to stay, stay um, on that radar. But for me, it's about twelve years too late. So the book comes from me, sort of twelve years ago. Emily, um, way less grey hair, being working in museums, working in science communication, and and sort of being really painfully aware that these were like places that reeked of privilege. And and so the whole book, you I mean, in a way, so there's this book, and it's I write these sentences about how this is you know a theoretically informed, empirically informed um, argument about what inclusion could mean and how exclusion operates and in a sense i'm trying to i'm almost trying to prove that exclusion is happening and how it works because of discussions back then where people were sort of being like oh don't be ridiculous you're being oversensitive no 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 we do a great um schools outreach project once a year with a very carefully targeted gujarati community and that's enough ranting i realize but like it even then i would say it is as it was then and is now as simple as looking across a gallery and looking at often a sea of predominantly white faces. And if you get into any evaluation data for institutions, they're mostly middle and upper class. And, and this pattern is just repeated across all of these kinds of public cultural resources. Um, and I think painfully so. So what I was trying to do was, was provide, I mean, it's a long winded way to win an argument, isn't it? Um, and be a sort of massive pedant maybe. But to say, no, look, this is a problem. and This is the shape and scale of the problem. And and I'm going to try and put together enough evidence, as it were, that you can't argue against me anymore because it, it becomes slightly um, yeah, sort of impossible to look away from. Um, so that's, I suppose, yeah, it comes from some sort of grudge holding place.
1: <laughs> I mean, do, you saw of identify, See how... The issues the book is grappling with and kind of the grudge the book mm. is is settling are common right across uh, contemporary culture mm. institutions. But the book is very specific as, as well, actually, and it's about um, science museums. And, and I guess there's like a couple of things that we might do in terms of clearing some ground for the discussion. The first is this idea of kind of everyday science and learning. Uh, obviously, it's in the title, uh, but also it's got, you know, a specific uh, kind of idea underpinning. And then I guess there's the context for the institution as well, which is, you know, you're quite upfront about, you know, these are science institutions mm-hmm. and they're in London and there is a kind of like Londonness that we have to mm-hmm. take seriously. So it'd be good to hear about, uh, yeah, this, this context. Mm. The book.
0: So I suppose the first, if I start with the everyday science learning um, jargon, the, I mean, that comes from, I mean, the field I work in is, is the sort of split space around... Um, what happens when we try and make science the sciences stem so the technology education ed- engineering maths as well as science public and this idea that science and the public are somehow separate which is you know hugely critiqued anyway so all this work around making science public science communication public engagement with science um, that has a very specific i mean in the academy and practice and policy quite a specific um, lineage and it's about Often popularization. In this country, it's about selling science. It, it has a history of um, the, a perception of public mistrust and the need to then sell science back to the public, which is obviously related to a sort of Thatcherite managerialist um, to justify public funding, tax funding for science. Public have to support science and ideally like it. And then, and that kind of being mobilized and across the scientific community is a way of trying to communicate science to at with or for the public such that they can come to love it in a way that people within the scientific community do or the science lobby you might call that kind of work um and that then they support it and the funding's more guaranteed and ring fenced and so on so that has quite a specific um set of motivations and um kind of research or theory space so so, you know, the move from communication to engagement, which may or may not be fully realised, this idea of who the public are often being quite narrow, this idea of adding an S to the idea of a public and, and that kind of suddenly we have heterogeneous publics and we've solved all these kinds of problems. Um, and there's some amazing work going on in that field, but, but that's quite niche in its own way. And, and often, depending on which theories or researchers work or policy documents you're reading can be quite narrowly understood as purely politically oriented so it's about public consultations or it can be sometimes um, moved into spaces like science museums science centers but very rarely means things like watching tv at home and then kind of next to that weird academics niche um, is the academic niche of, of education science education and within that sort of the sub niche as it were of informal science learning which people again there's there's a there's terminology arguments in both camps right and they they argue and they fight. Um, and so, so this informal science learning, informal science education, out-of-school learning, they're arguing about, well, there's schools and schools are important, but there's all this stuff around schooling where people might, might learn in all these different and wonderful and meaningful and lifelong ways that we don't take into account if we only think about formalised school university institutions. Um, but in that space, the political kind of orientation is often absent except in a kind of education as a cornerstone of democratic action. So so I, so I had more, more than one long chat with colleagues who are very long-suffering about like how in a book like this could I use either set of language, what would it mean, both kind of theoretically quite different spaces in some ways, although the practices often overlap. Mm-hmm. And because I wanted to find out um, what the people who work with me did quite ethnographically, so it's across two years of their lives, and it encompasses kind of every science-related interaction, story, experience, perspective. So I really was going from, like, stuff they watched on TV to stuff they looked up on their smartphones to um, science centres, to policy consultations, to festivals. So I, had to, I went with this um, everyday science learning term because it, it did for me this different job of pulling in the bits of science communication, public engagement that I needed to, pulling in the bits of education that I needed to, letting me look at cultural, educational and political practices, um, but also that kind of sociology of the everyday, sociology of everyday science and these, these ideas of um, kind of popular culture and what, what actual real humans are doing on the day-to-day that's, that's quite different. And so that's not to say museum visits are daily occurrences for most of us anyway. Um, but to just to try and reframe a little bit what's being left in and what's being left out of that space, so I mean, yeah, I made it up as a term, but I'm hoping for me, it was useful it did, yeah, it did a certain kind of work
1: no no, no and, and I think it works well actually to to both at once kind of say, we have to think about our institutions um mm-hmm. uh, but also you know to immediately stop just the sole focus mm-hmm. on the because. I think you've articulated really clearly maybe two or more approaches to this, but often the straightforward policy, occasionally academic discourses, begin and end with the institution, Mm. and you know in some ways are kind of saying, well, if certain groups aren't coming, then they're excluded. There's Mm. a problem. And actually, what's going on is no, you know, actually everybody is doing engagements yeah. with science education almost always you know yeah. they have opinions and you know that example you give the smartphone and yeah. later on in the book obviously there's there's lots of uh, of data on this but mm-hmm. yeah i, I think it, it works really well actually to kind of um gesture towards a particular direction for the institution but also to say it's not just about that
0: yeah and i suppose i'm, I'm sort of pulling down on some cultural studies work there where i'm sort of saying well if we think about culture as kind of popular or Unpopular, elite, dominant. And I'm trying to I'm trying to mess around a little bit with, well, actually stuff being beamed into your your hand via your phone or your bedroom via your TV every day is there in a way that going to a museum isn't. And there's lots to tease out there, but to ignore the stuff that comes into your house, your hand, your daily life at the expense of the big institution that's really visible and dominant. Really problematic, and I think contributes historically to some problematic framing in both those fields. That then could like kind of re contribute quite problematic, like ideological, and you could I mean, I argue racist, sexist, classed framings then of publics by virtue of what practices are recognised and what aren't, and so who counts, who doesn't count, whose whose lifestyle matters and who doesn't.
1: Yeah, and, and I mean, this is very much the kind of front end of the book now, isn't it? This idea about you know, we need to critically think about what inclusion and exclusion means and particularly to think about structures here. Um, and it'd be good to know actually what some of the structures uh, you're identifying, the kind of things that we need to be taking much more seriously um, when we think about inclusion and exclusion rather than just thinking about some groups that go or, you know, individuals have taste choices that mean that they'll go, that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, so I, I mean, uh, for me, a lot of that comes down to real frustrations with the work that already exists and similarly i suppose frustrations with how that gets enacted in in practice and, and policy chat so I'm, I'm sort of trying to make the argument through through the work really because i, I mean i didn't come up with these ideas straight away <laughs> don't get me wrong um but to, to say well if you think about how we understand inclusion and exclusion often if you look at the kind of public science landscape or, or everyday science learning, actually often at an institutional level and the policy level is understood that science is just fantastic, wonderful stuff, um, albeit misunderstood. And these institutions, uh, whether it's uh, you know, a, a, school, uh, a kind of physics schools club or a science centre or a science festival, um, they're fantastic. And the problem is that the people who don't go, they just don't realize how fantastic these things are. Um, and so I, I sort of write about that as a double deficit framing. So, like the people that don't go then become deficient. They become not only attitudinally deficient, because they, they really don't appreciate science enough, um, but they become behaviorally deficient. They're not doing the right things. Their practices are either invisible or not recognized or misrecognized. So, I was trying to move. Kind of move that discussion on to like, well, actually, first of all, that's a misunderstanding. And then the rest of the book is about, well, look at what people are doing. Actually, they're doing, (laughs) of course, they've got rich cultural, political, educational lives. Of course, they're doing all this stuff. And actually, if you look at how they experience science and everyday science learning, and you look at their perspectives and their opinions, actually, we can start to see that these have been profoundly shaped by structural inequalities. And the ones I I really get most into are kind of around racist practices, around imperialism, colonialism, um, how this sort of very white, very Eurocentric, often very kind of British and kind of reinforcing British nationalism, ideas then to create a sense that science is not for them and everyday science learning is not for them. So the people they see on TV aren't like them. When it's in relation to science, that when they go to a, a science space, an exhibition, say they don't see stories about people like them. Or when they do, they're damning, pejorative. You know, um, the one that springs to mind most horrendously is that is that kind of tired old racist trope of Africa is burdened by disease and a kind of white saviour narrative about people coming in with Western science. Um, now, of course, medicine's amazing; it saved my life. But that doesn't mean those stories are true, and they're 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 really rarefied. And there's we get into that kind of one story trope. So that story is told again and again and again. And participants, like the people who work with me, they're not blind to that. They're sort of saying, look, we just, we we see these stories about Africa and it's always awful. But like, it's <laughs> where we come from. It's where our families are. We know it's great. We have a wonderful time. Like these aren't countries of just, you know, so like Sierra Leonean, I'm thinking of two Sierra, Sierra Leonean nurses who are like, Sierra Leone, we've got a wonderful family back there we've got we have a lovely time there and these stories they're painful it's painful to see ourselves our heritage our culture dismissed in this way and then told in a deficit story um so the book because the participants are all from like minority ethnic groups or or racialized groups in the uk from a a uk kind of power perspective um, i do try and draw out race quite a lot but it does obviously intersect with like class disadvantages and um, gender disadvantages for these participants in particular. So in different ways, they meet different kind of nasty moments where the structural inequalities become really clear. And what I suppose has pained me and continues to pain me is we see lots and lots of research coming out about science and popular culture, uh, science education, science communication, that completely overlooks the effect of structural inequality which was so clear with all the people who work with me. Structural inequality is why they didn't like science. That's shaping inaccessibility. It's shaping their experiences, but it's completely absent when we look at a lot of the research. So we have really, really interesting research that somehow completely overlooks issues of race and ethnicity, gender, class, or any other kind of intersecting subjectivities related to people's lives such that structural inequalities are seemingly absent, um, which I just can't bear.
1: I mean, what, one way of really focusing in on that is to think about, um, I guess, the kind of uh, the role of science in the everyday lives of your mm-hmm. participants. And I wonder if, if we do a couple of things. One would be to kind of introduce them a little bit more and then say a bit about what, you know, the kind of uh, the rich life scientific was for them before we start to think about their interactions with institutions. Mm-hmm.
0: So... So the people who worked with me were, I mean, bless them. What a massive effort to go to. Um, so I was trying to find people who, who were, kind in a position that they they could do sort of everyday science learning activities. Um, so so what we know from the from data, so the data we do have, which is mostly about dominant institutions, is that um, why middle and upper classes living in urban centres go to science museums, science centres. It's the same for galleries. Um, uh, Zoos, it's a little bit different. Science centres, it seems to be the same. So I was looking for people then from um, ideally not from white ethnic majority backgrounds, um, not from middle and upper class backgrounds, but who still lived in an urban setting that they they could go to these kinds of dominant institutions potentially. Um, So I worked with, in the end, I I approached, I mean, the fieldwork was long and I approached lots of groups and, you know, fair enough, a lot of them had no interest in the project, which is very understandable because it's quite hard to take part in a project about something you don't particularly like or want to do. Um, so,
1: and, and indeed, you know, when institutions are in some ways, you know, explicitly or implicitly saying, not for you. Yeah, we're not, not for, you. for you.
0: Yeah, for sure. And like, you know, I'm white. I am now probably inescapably middle class, really. Um, and I was a science insider. So I not only had a sort of ex science museum background, but they, they thought of me as a sciencey person as well. So in the end, I mean, happily, five groups went through the project for um, about two years of fieldwork. And that was so that's the Sierra Leonean group, I already mentioned, a Somali group, uh, a mixed Asian group, a mixed Latin American group. And um, an afro Caribbean group. And they, I mean, they're mostly adults, so they were kids, but I didn't particularly focus on the kids. Um, they, they were all living in either Southwark or Lambeth, so central London boroughs, um, which is also where I lived because I'm a lazy researcher. And I I met them all uh, kind of in one way or another. They were all um, what you could call uh, grassroots community groups. So they weren't service provision groups which I wanted to be really careful about because I didn't want participation to hinge on being able to get access to a service um so they were kind of self-forming groups who did stuff together and they they let me just hang out for a bit and then eventually just got used to me being around and would do bits of research stuff with me and we mostly do the things that they were interested in um and so there was a lot of chat in the in the beginning around you know what what kind what what were their lives like what did they do what didn't they do um and some of them you know you have that kind of main community gatekeeper people so some of those people like i spent quite a lot of time with and would you know babysit for and hang out with and got that you know you just like you would with anyone you get a sense of of course people have rich complex lives i mean of course they do um so they they would do loads of things um so, I mean, the examples that kind of spring most easily to mind, if you kind of think about educational, cultural, political, it's like the Latin American group, who were predominantly Colombian, but quite mixed as well. They did, like, they have a huge Colombian football league, men's and women's, that runs an elephant, well, ran an elephant castle and seems to have moved to Ruskin Park more recently. That um, was over the weekends. Massive commitment. Super into it. Um, the sort of the dancing, Saturday, Friday night dancing, the jokes about my bad dancing were in every group. Um, <laughs> So huge dancing culture, huge music culture. And they're all doing uh, like weekend schools for Spanish maths, which they felt their community had a strong talent for, and drumming and dancing music. And they put on um, like, this. do you know the Carnival del Pueblo? So the kind of the biggest carnival outside of Rio happens in London, is run by Latin American community in London, and is, is all slightly underground. It's not that well known, shockingly. And so they run that. They're they're all in music groups. They're rich cultural, educational lives, politically highly organised. So a lot of the fieldwork period, they were organising marches and protests and letter-writing campaigns about um, the fact that they didn't want to be classed as Ibero-American within the London kind of political system because they, as as a result of colonialism, did not identify as Ibero-American. And that was profoundly problematic to them. So... In in relation to their amazing lives, they're doing all this stuff, as were people in all those groups. Um, But when it comes to thinking about this everyday science learning, there's a real shift in orientation. So there's this idea that science isn't for us and these kinds of practices aren't for us. um, And that that's reinforced kind of again and again and again. So when we talk about places like museums, we we did talk about them because they were um because they're so visible they're such dominant institutions so they 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 knew something about them although enjoyably got um a lot of the names enjoyably wrong so like the national history museum um questions around whether madame tussauds is one of the national museums so this idea of you know museums are tourist attractions they're really expensive they're not for us um if we went there, a lot of concern around surveillance, um, which, you know, as we see in the later chapters, is borne out, actually. Um, it being too, it's far too expensive. And even being in central London, it's too far away. So getting across town to go to them is a problem. Getting there, there's the wrong kind of food. You can't take your family of four and your aunties. And it's, it's just a sort of, it's, it's unthinkable in some ways, although they were visibly recognisable. In a way that that kind of that science as culture space wasn't so science festivals, science comedy, science talks, public engagement at universities, all of that was completely unrecognisable and invisible, um, and sort of and people had never heard of anything like that. And people had also felt that like local government science related consultations were completely unheard of. The national government ones weren't specifically heard of, but there was an idea that that might exist. But alongside an idea that that they would never be listened to, that their participation was pointless, it was in some way like predeterminedly pointless. Um, And so all of the kind of dominant institutional practices where we see public engagement, science communication, informal science learning, um, that was was inaccessible to them. Um, And I talk about them as fields. I'm saying these kinds of fields are inaccessible to these groups. And actually their exclusion is is part of what makes the field. And if you look at what they are doing, they have got access to some of the popular culture stuff. So science on TV, science on the internet, science through podcasts, this kind of world was more accessible. And obviously so, because it's beamed into their hand or their living room or their bedroom. Um, but even those practices were, like they weren't the answer. Do you know what I mean? Like they they were kind of still riddled with structural inequalities effectively. So then they're, they're listing kind of famous white men as science TV presenters. They're talking about how, you know, they might watch something, but they're not watching it on purpose. And I make this distinction of that they discuss between like science as a subject of a TV show. So one of the big blue chip nature documentaries, for instance, which people would watch a little bit. Um, but also science as the background to a show, which was the kind of show people watched a lot more. So like CSI, Big Bang Theory, and these kinds of... So science is a kind of cultural setting for a show about something else that's character-led and narrative-led and, and has something else going on. Um, and the, and what a couple of them make really clear, so like Gloria from the African caribbean group, she makes really clear, or maybe it's Connie. No, I think it's Gloria. And she's sort of like, well, I don't turn it on on purpose. I just watch if it's there. I'm not sort of following these things avidly, although a couple of them were. So, so we're into this slightly tricky position of, They're not doing the dominant stuff. There's some popular kind of less dominant stuff that does make its way through into their daily lives. Um, All of this is colouring their kind of orientation away from science and away from everyday science learning. And the stuff that makes it through isn't enough. So I'm arguing from that, well, actually, if we think about this in terms of field and Bourdieu's work on field, these are inaccessible fields. And part of what constructs the field is that inaccessibility. So... The people who are in are in by virtue of the people who are out. The things that are dominant are dominant by virtue of the people, that things that are excluded. And it's not then enough to say, well, they're behaviourally or attitudinally deficient, because we can see they're clearly not because They've got all this other stuff going on. It's a sort of non-starter argument.
1: And, and this is just made kind of concrete um, in the sections of the book that talk about visiting the institution and relationships to the institution. And you know, in, in many ways, uh, I think one of the things I liked about the book was the sense of um, almost everybody you're um, kind of engaged with is acting completely rationally. because mm. you know th- these are not kind of misperceptions about institutions. No,
0: because they're right. That's the thing.
1: Yeah, and it'd be, be interesting to hear about uh, the work you did in terms of things like visits, and you know, if you're sort of defending cultural institutions, the sort of unfortunate or you know maybe we need to do more if you're taking a more critical view the fact that yeah you know, the, these institutions as, as you gesture towards are set up to be exclusive even in the act of being inclusive that is you know a mode mm, of excluding mm, mm, mm,
0: mm, <laughs> mm. yeah so um so i suppose the sort of the steps of the rest the the, the way it sort of goes goes through with the the work is um, sort of talk about how there, there were a few people who were more oriented towards science and and how actually because of their social positions and structural inequalities, even being oriented towards science wasn't enough to help them get into science, whether educationally, whether as a career, whether as a hobby, whether through kind of particular dispositions towards certain formats of everyday science learning. Um, and, and we moved into like trying to think about why from their perspective, these things were, were so tricky. And what a lot of them talk about is quite a sort of embodied sense of, of what, I mean, really, racism, um, but also class discrimination and sexism and how these are kind of locked together in this mesh that mean that when they're in these places, they're out of place. And I, and I write quite a lot, because they talk quite a lot, about the extra work they have to do to engage with science and everyday science learning practices so one of the things we did in the project when it became quite clear that um, people that they hadn't really been to many of these kind of science everyday science learning spaces they felt that they were not for them but they were also i mean they were lovely good people They, they were quite like well come on there was a sort of sense of like come on then emily all right well show us one then you show us one um, so we arranged visits to places that they wanted to go to. And I should say of the five groups, only four visited because um, the Afro-Caribbean group just didn't think it was worth their while. They were like, no, it's pointless. We're not. Thank- I mean, thanks. It's lovely. But no, we're not. We're not doing that. Um, and the other four groups, they visited a science centre and um, one one group visited the science centre and the other three groups visited science museums. And... I mean, it's just sort of heartbreaking, really. So, um, this—I'm trying to think of the like the least grim way to try and tell that story in out loud words. I mean, basically everything was set up against them, and they before we went, they had talked at length. I mean, that sort of chapter five is this—a very disillusioned kind of, I mean, almost almost drawing on Afro-pessimism, like the, the system excludes us and it's working that way because it's, it's trying to exclude us. It's not a mistake. It is set up to reproduce those kinds of social inequalities, structural inequalities. And we feel like to be in those spaces, it, um, it, it creates an additional burden of labour for us. But also it's not just the effort. There's a kind of emotional um labor attached to being in spaces that aren't for you. And when we go we go to these spaces and right enough, they're not for them. And everything, all of their perspectives, all of their expectations are borne out by those experiences. So um there's nothing in any kind of community language. And it's not just then I mean they're really savvy humans. So they're like we don't necessarily expect our language. We expect just to see some international languages. So I write a bit about the kind of structural racism inherent in monolingualism in, in England and Britain. And that's not, you know, <laughs> that's a choice. Other countries have different choices, but translation is possible. Um, and they were really, you know, they were like, we, we just would expect to see something, just a, a gesture towards the idea of other languages. Um, they acknowledge very, quickly that they saw no one else like them in those institutions. So they saw, you know, like, um, Alejandro, the Latin American group, dad, he's saying, you know, did you see any other Latin families in there? No, you didn't. Of course you didn't. Um, they don't see staff that look like them. They, they're, they're sort of, they don't see, they don't see staff that look like them anywhere, except the Sierra Leonean group who do meet a Sierra Leonean security guard, who was great. I mean, he was the best staff member for them really ever. Um, and right, it was really super welcoming. But they still left with a sense of the space isn't for us. Um, th- these practices aren't for us. Two groups had um, kind of booked facilitated sessions. One in a science centre was, I mean, f- to paraphrase, really bad. Um, so it was a young man who just perhaps wasn't, I mean, like, my argument is just he's not, not trained well enough. Like the support's not there for him to do that work with enough nuance Um, and he effectively shouts at the three Somali women the entire time and makes them feel really uncomfortable. And it wasn't, I, I left that because, you know, you've got to remember I'm an ex museum worker. So I left that visit knowing it was awful and thinking I've got to take them somewhere better. And it took me a few weeks of sort of research thinking to be like, no, 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 your job isn't to convince them that these places are good your job is to listen to what they've got to say to you. Um, and when I was listening through that transcript, it was only really then when I was transcribing it that I realized he was shouting at them the whole time and like asking them, like, do you know what this is? Do you know what, like, this sort of trying to elicit a science answer, um, which they couldn't have given him any, I mean, it was just, it was awful. It was kind of heartbreaking. Um, and you know, what's, what was, this is the issue with like evaluations in this kind of space. Of course, they all told me they had a good day out and they all very appreciative of the visits and because they they have to say that, don't they? Um, But if you look at what happens, they're patronized, they're disrespected um, with examples of racial profiling from security guards, cafe staff, people being told not to touch things, people being kind of hounded out of cafe spaces, which are apparently closing, but no one else is being hounded out. I mean, it sort of goes on and on, and that's before you even get into stuff about exhibitions, interpretation, the kinds of stories on display, the imagery on display, all so profoundly marked by racist, sexist and class practices that just reify endlessly the who counts and who doesn't count, so that they come out of those visits knowing that those places aren't for them, with all of their worst expectations totally borne out, and their non-participation is, is completely rational. And what, I try and what I try and discuss from that perspective is, so on the one hand, they're excluded. These fields are inaccessible. But on the other hand, they are also choosing to not participate. And th- those things are so tightly interwoven that we have to think about them really carefully together so that you can't kind of fix one without the other. And how on earth would you ever do that? And I suppose that's where a lot of the critique of what I could perhaps critically call tokenistic inclusion practices, or we see a lot of the the critique of work around this term diversity um, or inclusion, that actually these tokenistic inclusion practices that don't systematically change not only the, the media, but also the science content, can never hope. Then to change the exclusion practices and the non-participation practices. Because actually what they're doing is keeping the status quo very carefully protected. So we'll do our one thing in Black History Month, which participants were very critical of. Um, and that, as, as I think Connie from the Caribbean group says, so we know we're not welcome the rest of the year. Um, so th- there's these kind of very small pieces of inclusive practice, which are so insufficient that they they kind of make the exclusion worse because somehow doing that is enough that they don't have to, all the other changes that are implied by participants' experiences and perspectives can, you know, they never come to be because we're doing this one tiny thing over here and that's okay. So I mean, it's pretty damning.
1: Well, (laughs) I mean, what's interesting about the book I guess is the sense of from a like a critical perspective, you just almost stop there and say, well, you know, we've illustrated the function of the institution here. Mm. But that isn't where the book ends. And obviously, you know, you've got uh, a cautious, ambivalent commitment to saying the institution can and must do better. Um, And the framework you draw on, you know, just the kind of back end of the book, uh, I guess, to to sort of sum it up, is about moving from access and participation to this idea of recognition and Mm. respect and, and maybe we'll conclude with um, you know, some of those themes about what would uh, recognition and respect look like for a contemporary, not just you know, kind of science institution, but also for a contemporary museum, a uh, contemporary cultural space.
0: Yeah, and I should say I'm a little half-hearted in that last piece, because I, I sort of suggest, I'm thinking about Mariana Ortega's work on, like, can we be trusted? And we, I suppose, being like white people that work in museums, can we be trusted to do this work? I'm not sure. And um, that, you know, famous Audre Lord quote about master's houses and dismantling things. Is, is this? So I sort of suggest that, yeah, I mean, on the one hand, I am actually pretty pro a total radical alternative. And I think we should think about that and I think we should work on that. And I'm always happy to see those sorts of um, projects develop. But I'm also, I suppose, um, I don't know, sufficiently elderly to appreciate that, the fact is we have a landscape of public culture, whether it's science or arts or, or something else, and that landscape isn't going away. And it, it maintains this dominant, kind of heavily funded, extremely visible um, position, and it continues to play these really entrenched, awful roles in social reproduction. So on some level, given that I don't think they're all going to disappear overnight, They have to be transformed and there has to be a responsibility there around transformation. And I suppose I start to use stronger words like transformation because I don't think we can just do a tiny piece and consider it to be acceptable or appropriate or even slightly enough. And I think we have to go so much further. And I think I'm sort of aware that I'm not sure I can even really imagine what that is because I am where I am. I've got my own social you know, I'm socialised in certain ways. I've got my own blinks on, um, so I start to try and draw through what what it would be. Um, because I should say, like the reason I I in the the book, the way I structured part of that argument is some groups at some times had moments of joy and wonder in those spaces. They were brief. They were disruptive. They weren't necessarily as transgressive as you would hope they would be, um, but they did have moments that could be considered. Meaningful, so I'm sort of trying to think about well, how can we build on that? What is it we could do to make that more um, useful? And so I, sp- I start to draw on that, that political philosophy framework of like redistributive social justice, but also a kind of relational recognition of social justice, where you could think about what it might mean to not only be redistributing access to these kinds of dominant resources, but also recognizing those popular everyday practices recognizing lots of different people so not just kind of white british male achievements for instance um and recognizing other kinds of knowledge and recognizing that they count so i'm I'm sort of pushing towards changing not only um curatorial interpretive practices marketing practices front of house um kind of uh, visitor facilitation practices Uh, But I'm also suggesting we have to change some of the core content as well and what that means. And I I know there's a lot of work in science and technology studies about what it might mean to disrupt science or STEM. Uh, But I think we have to do all of those pieces together. And that, I mean, I think that looks like a scary change to a lot of my colleagues, and I appreciate that. So in a sense, that Chapter 7 is there because because I'm really aware, like I say in the beginning, like colleagues of mine, Um, more than one this kind of idea of oh Emily you've gone stitched up museums and like that's not my intention but but I am I'm unwilling to hold back on the critique because the people who worked with me those are their experiences that's their lives it would do them a profound injustice not to talk about that and I also say in the intro that like what I found out shocked me and it did but it also that's it wouldn't have shocked wouldn't have shocked my friend or my neighbor from a different background. Like, it just shocked me because of where I was and what work I did. Um, so I think we have to take all of this on board and we have to, I mean, if we're going to salvage something from these kinds of dominant practices, then they have to change. Um, I mean, there's also the kind of economic argument if they don't change, they're redundant. They're dead, they're dead in the water and, and that's the end of that. You can sort of, you know, wipe your hands of them. Um, so there is this sort of, mild hollywood ending where i start to say well perhaps we you know let's think about what would a meaningfully inclusive informal science learning practice science communication practice public engagement practice or as i put it everyday science learning practice what would it look like what would it mean and how do we do it and i, I mean I'm, I'm saying things that lots of people have said before about participatory work about building relationships about sharing power about opening up spaces um and about trying to move away from things like racial capitalism and interest convergence into things that could be more meaningful, that could be more productive. Um, and I think that's going to be hard, but it doesn't mean people aren't doing it. So, I mean, the so I do a Hollywood ending, and then I have a really depressing little mini chapter at the end because the Hollywood ending like slightly pains me. I think it's important to think about what we could do, but I'm I'm suspicious, and I suppose have become quite cynical about what that means. And so I do try and point towards projects that I think are doing something. And I think in the in the 12 years that I've been obsessing about this work, like we have, there are more in different projects, but there's not many. Like I can probably still list them in a couple of paragraphs. And that that's pathetic. We have to have much more going on than that. Like we have to do much more. We just have to do much more. Um, so there's this sort of ending around um, how actually this sort of, both um, a kind of greed, a desire for change, like personally, and a sense of kind of slight resignation that, that I'm not sure we're going to see it quickly. And I mean, a lot of that is because structural inequality is a, is a massive social problem that we can't easily fix. But I think it is on those of us who research, who make policies, who, who work in these kinds of institutions to try and make those changes in the spaces we have power and control and say over. Otherwise, what are we doing? Are we saying science and, and public culture, they're actually only for this narrow group of dominant people who, like, can get everything anyway? And if that's what we want to say, well, great, we can carry on. But if that's not what we want to say, I think we have to take this challenge of change really seriously and think about what it might mean.
1: And how does that kind of translate into to what you're doing now? Because obviously, like, the process of doing, you know, not just a sort of 12-year project, but also an academic book, has, you know kind of an endpoint to it mm. so you know are you thinking more in terms of kind of activist practice or you know are you kind of thinking in terms of future work that um, is you know even more critical like what, what, what are you sort of going to do
0: even more horrible um, so we have we have a couple of projects running um, the one the one that's probably closer to this is we have a project running called um, Youth Equity in STEM which is a kind of UK US collaboration where we're working with practice partners so we being like this a small academic team based here at ucl and uh, the institute of education in ucl and we're working with um practitioners in a in a quite different sort of science learning setting so one's a youth uh, a youth community organization one's a a sort of coding club Uh, one's a zoo and one is a science center but they're all invested in in doing equitable um, informal science learning so very much in that education space and we're working with them and with youth as um, like collaborative researchers, so young people, to try and map out both the young people's lives, the practitioners' experiences, and then try and think about what could be, what kinds of practices could you come up with in those spaces that would be not just good science learning and not just equity, but equitable science learning. So that when we're thinking about that in terms of, you know, what would it mean to disrupt power dynamics? What would it mean to change orientations? Um, and not just change the minoritized youth, as we so often see, but, like, change the the structure of the practices, the institutions, and, like, somewhat grandiosely, the field as well. Um, so that's got a few more years to run. And I think is is quite – it's really interesting to work like that. So it's quite a different um, – I mean, it's a bigger project. It's a big team, and it's quite interesting to see all those um, kind of interests play out. I think also – I've been sort of obsessing about um the work like some colleagues have, some colleagues doing museums around what what it might mean to think about um like decolonizing science practices for instance and and that I think is is really interesting to think about in this context um and what and again I suppose I'm drawn to that cuz I'm thinking about that can we change the science piece as well as changing the medium or media piece um and also uh, in, like, in, you know, all that spare time we have, keep, keep thinking, as colleagues have pointed out to me, um, at the end of this, when I finished writing this book, um, some colleagues and my husband both went, well, when's your practitioner, like, handbook coming out for that? <laughs> Which point I did shed a tear because I was like, I can't, I can't write anything else. Um, but I think that I'll probably try and do an open access version that is more practice-oriented. Because I think, like, if you think about, public engagement, like who are my publics? Well, like my research participants are amazing and I'm still in contact with them, but they're really, they're enjoyably cynical about academic work. So I did invite some of them to a book launch and they were like, oh, sweet, no. You do your own academic stuff in your own spaces and, you know, we're all right. Um, So I think publics for me are, often the way I think about the people I want to influence is people who work in that sector, whether it's research or practice or policy. So I think trying to tailor something more for them would be really helpful because I'm so aware this is an academic monograph with all of the joys and limitations of an academic monograph.